It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. Everybody needs mentors in their life. Sometimes we're lucky to have several and to be able to call them our friends. I never had great role models as a child, but as I became an adult, I have run across people who have become very special to me, and I have learned a lot from them. Through time, I will introduce you to some of those mentors on this show. The information they have to offer is so valuable in so many ways, not just to me, but to all of you listening out there. And today, I want to introduce you to one of them, my dear friend and coach, Kirk Nurmi. How are you, Kirk? Robin, fun to be with you here this morning. You know, a few months ago, we were sitting down to have coffee at our little place that we normally go to, and you spoke three words to me that really kicked me in the ass and woke me up. And those words were, claim your power. I don't know why they kicked me in the ass the way they did, but those three words were very powerful to me to hear because I was going through an internal struggle after writing the second book and not really knowing how I was going to approach this. I'm a broadcaster. I've been able to talk to people openly for over 30 plus years. But with this particular subject matter, I was scared to death to be sitting on a platform and talk openly about this. And your three words to me, claim your power, really, I don't know how to say it, but they really woke me up. And that is something that I can never thank you enough for. And you know, it's, it's interesting when people look at things in life, you think you're good at doing something and then you realize that you do need help. You need people around you to help you figure out who you are, to help cheerleader you, to get up there and stand on that stage and start speaking. And for you, you wrote this beautiful book, Defend Your Greatness. And I'm almost finished reading it. And there's so many things that you say in that book that are so powerful. And I want people to know who you are, where you come from, the things that you've done, and why you are able to stand up there, claim your power, and defend your greatness. So kind of tell everybody who you are, a little bit about your background, and the kinds of things that you are now doing with your life to defend your greatness. Boy, that's a, that's a big uh, introduction there. Thank you for, for all of that, and, and I'm honored by um, what you expressed. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that my words had that kind of impact. Let's see, what is there to know about Kirk Nurmi? I grew up in Seattle. I wanted to be a lawyer from a very young age. Um, When I hit my high school years, those years where you start taking the standardized tests and and start talking to counselors about college and everything else, those childhood dreams I had of becoming a lawyer were still within me. But my life circumstances were such that um, I was a little depressed towards the end of high school. Um, not clinically so, I don't know, or was never diagnosed that way. But I didn't have that good of grades and just never got to the point where I would have, would have been law school material, would have been college material, at least according to my, a lot of my family and counselors and things like that, giving me well-meaning, loving advice about where my future should go. And so they were given a, you know, told to maybe think about becoming a cop. 
So I thought about becoming a cop, and I bounced in and out of school because I was young. And, and uh, eventually, in my early 20s, I got myself up by my bootstraps, realized that what was in my heart was still there, what I wanted to do. And I went to college, got my bachelor's degree, uh, faced some rejection after coming, getting that first bachelor's degree in terms of getting into law school. And uh, after that, I eventually got into law school, was diverted, uh, delightfully diverted into a path where I met my wife. We've been married for over 26 years now. Wow. And uh, earned a master's degree and then went to law school and had my dream job as a public defender. And in 2013, life changed a great deal. On January 2nd, 2013, I stood up in front of a courtroom and said, Kirk Nermy on behalf of Jody Ann Arias. And on that day, everything changed because the world was watching. Cameras were watching. The trial was being live streamed. And my life and my identity kind of became hijacked to a certain degree uh, throughout the course of that trial, which did not come to an end until 2015 and in many ways hasn't come to an end in my life uh, even almost five years later. And you know what I find really funny about that is we all have these defining moments in our life where things begin to change and they take away from who we are. We're no longer visible as an individual and we become something that is a reflection of what other people see and what they only want to see. They don't see the real person. And when I sit here and I look at you, I've come to know you very well over the past year. And when I look at you, I don't even see the same version of that person that I saw that was on television representing this person. I see a completely different person. I see, I see for all intents and purposes, the real you. I see through that facade that everyone painted this picture of who you were. I don't understand why people have such a perception of others. They look at them and they say, oh, well, I don't like that guy because you were doing a job. You were doing your job. You were doing something that you actually loved to do but then became to the point, at least from what I understand, you got to the point where you didn't like doing it anymore. Well, yeah, after that, uh, after that trial, a couple months afterwards, I was thinking about, did I really want to continue practice law again? Um, the zeal didn't continue, and then cancer entered my life. Stage 3 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosis, which meant six rounds of chemotherapy. And I began to wonder if I was, I went to a dark place, beginning to wonder whether or not I was going to, in fact, you know, go into chemotherapy. I was in my late 40s. Did I want to start my life over? Did I want to rebuild it again after I'd gone so hard and worked so hard to get into law school and build this career? And I made the promise to myself that I wasn't going to just go through this and, and earn more years on this planet, as, as it were, just to simply do the same thing, just to simply run out the clock. And that's where a lot of the lessons that I t share in D Defend Your Greatness came from, came from that journey, that whole journey with infamy and everything else. And you're right. Look, and it's probably symptomatic of our social media world or our image-based world. We look at certain images of people or certain quotes, and we decide to demonize them based on that, right? That's why we have what we call cancel culture. And people saw that snapshot of me. They believed it was a reality uh, of, of who I was. They, they made up their own story because it was easier and simpler than actually looking 
uh, into the reality of the situation, which is one thing we do, right? It's so easy to place a judgment on anybody real quickly, like anybody that cuts us off the road or whatever it is, right? We make that snap judgment, and we can do that in a lot of different areas in our life. And ultimately, while we do that person a disservice, we do ourselves a disservice as well. So what led you to defending your greatness? I mean, you, you went through a lot of trials and tribulations, and I hate to even say that being that you're a former attorney, but, you know, it just kind of fits the, the, the mood here. And there's so many things that we go through in life that shape who we are, and we know the story of how you gave up be, being a lawyer and you fought this cancer battle, but what was that definitive moment that you said, okay, I'm done with this shit. It's time to just redirect myself, come up with a new way of defending my greatness. It's, it's time for me to take my life back for me because everybody out there across the world had this image of who you were and they really did not know who you were. Did you actually lose yourself during that time too? I don't think so because, um, you know, I, I was, was a lawyer and I was in that position and I had a job to do and that was the job fate cast me on. So I don't think I lost myself in that. Certainly, life was a lot different. I had to be more hypervigilant and everything with a lot of the threats and, and that sort of thing. But I don't think I lost a sense of who I was because I, I know where I wanted to go. But um, to answer your, your previous question in terms of that moment, I think one of the pivotal, I, I don't know that it was one moment in time, but it was asking myself one question. I think that's the best way to put it, that I would challenge everybody out there to ask and really... I don't just say ask, I guess I should say confront yourself with the question. And that question being, are you happy? Because that question is a really powerful question because we tend to think we are, at least. And it was a question I never really confronted myself with, even in my mid-40s, right? I had gone through school, I had become a lawyer, and just assumed I was happy. I mean, just assumed it because I was fulfilling this this mission that I had wanted to do since I was a child. I never really confronted myself with the question. Now I say confront because when you ask yourself that question, the tempting thing to do is to say yes and move on because that doesn't mean there's any changes are in, are in order. But I confronted myself with a question to really get the truth. Like I say in Defend Your Great, you don't have to show your work. You don't, I don't care how you get there, but you have to get to the true answer. You cannot fool yourself with the comfortable answer. So I confronted myself with that question really by looking at what I would call the three main areas in my life. I was looking at my intimate relationship, my friends, and my career, which I, which I think is probably the way most people would break it down in terms of those three main areas of their life. And I could come to, you know, I was happy with my relationship. I was happy with my friends and my peer group. And I, I wanted to say yes to that answer, was I happy practicing law? I wanted to say yes to that question because of the, because of the history, right? And we, you put in all that time. We put in all that time. And, and one, uh, you know, I, I talk in other portions of my book about, you know, letting our history drag our, 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 our future, you know, letting that hinder what we do in the future. And that was kind of what I was confronting because you build something up and you go, okay, and then the question is, well, if I built this up and everything, did I just want to run out the clock in, in, in my life if I wasn't happy? So I really kept going, am I happy, am I happy, am I happy? And when the answer came back, no, and 
I had done what I had done to um, enduring the, the rounds of chemotherapy to stay on this planet, instantly then the shift became making happiness a priority, I, making happiness my beacon and following that as opposed to status or the next cool car to have or whatever it is or, or my next case. It was just about my personal happiness and making that a beacon. And you gave up being a lawyer. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I had some issues with the bar. I stood up to my lying client, at least to some extent. There's probably more on that to come. But uh, I stood up to my lying client when she went on national TV and, and said dis- very disparaging things about me and things that would put my safety in jeopardy. Um, and I um, really, when I had those troubles with the bar, really was confronted more with some of these same questions. And I asked to be disbarred. Um, They were going to give me a four-year suspension. And I knew that with that kind of limit, I really wouldn't go out and explore it. It would be a safety net for me. And I didn't want that safety net. I mean, that time would be up now or or close to it. That time would be up. And I could see it would be so tempting to go back and just wind up on the same wheel that I was on before, right? Just because it's comfortable. I know how to do it. I was really good at it. But that wasn't what I wanted. That wasn't my mission. And after that was done, sometime after that was done, I took the big distinguished certificate that you get when you're admitted to the state bar in Arizona. And I went out to my backyard and I set that thing on fire. Good for you. And I watched it burn. And it was a very uh, transcendent moment of me releasing a bit of that uh, history because that's something we all need to do when we move forward. And that's how I did it. And you said something that struck a chord with me. There's two things you actually said, because it took me 30 years to write a book about my first marriage and all of the grief that I went through with the domestic abuse and losing a child and everything else. But I had to set the record straight. And I didn't know how much time I had left on this planet either. I didn't go through a cancer crisis, but my late husband had died from cancer. So I learned a lot from that. And I felt like I had to set the record straight and I don't know why I felt that. I just felt that need. I understood that I had to do it. But you also mentioned two words, safety net. And I think a lot of people, a lot of us human beings, we're so damn afraid to step out of our comfort zone. And the safety net, we're always looking for the safety net. We're so afraid to step out of that comfort zone because we're afraid of happiness. And I don't understand why we hold ourselves back from that happiness. Do you have, I mean, maybe you and I can just kind of talk about that a little bit because I myself kept myself from being happy for a long time and I didn't understand why, but when I found that moment, that definitive moment to say no more and walked away from something that made me so miserable, I found that inner happiness and I just, I didn't even realize that that existed. And I don't know if it's our conditioning. I don't know if it's because of what we see out there in the world. I don't know if it's because of the way we grow up. Why are we so afraid to be happy? Well, I don't think that we're afraid to be happy. I would take issue with that. I think the reality is, at least my upbringing and probably a lot of people's, happiness wasn't put as a priority. It was other things, right? It was getting a job. Like, for example, I was raised by my grandparents. And they grew up in the Depression, so it was making sure you had a good job, you were always going to have a meal, and, and happiness was supposed to flow from that. So we have it kind of backwards in this culture, is what I would suggest. 
is that we have so many people saying, oh, you're going you're gonna to get married or and you're going to have kids or you're going to go to college or whatever the adults around you tell you. Because I, I believe that we are born inherently happy, right? That's why I think we're attracted to babies and children because they're inherently happy. They're untarnished by socialization, right? Not mm-hmm. social contract, not what side of the road we're on. We drive on, but the socialization idea of what we're supposed to do. Because to me, in that point in time, you're closest to source, you're not dis- distorted by other humans, and you're there in that, what I call that single-digit era, right? Where you're mm-hmm. happy, you're just having fun, you're imagining, you want to do all these different things, and you don't think about the, the practical considerations that, that go into certain things. Like when I wanted to be a lawyer at five or six I wasn't thinking about, well, that's seven years of school and everything else, right? I was thinking about, I just connected to it. So I, I think the main problem, as I see it, is that we expect happiness to be a byproduct of all these other things, but it's really, it's really not. We don't put it as a priority. We think that something is going to make us happy, or an object is going to make us happy, or when we earn money it's going to make us happy, whatever it is, and then it doesn't come or it's fleeting. And we keep chasing that. And the problem is, if we just made happiness the priority, the beacon, then all those other things can fall into place. But because it's a, it's a socialization of what we're supposed to do. So it's part of our conditioning as we grow up. Yeah, I yeah. think so. There's, there's, to me, there's no doubt about it, because when's the last time, you know, you don't go to school and learn about happiness. You, you know, you're, you're, it's, there's, it's just not a thing that we talk about. Right. Now, I'm going to put you on the hot seat just a little bit here because I have a question that came to me the other day, and I said, you know, I'm just going to bring this up. We always talk about this claiming your power and defending your greatness. And what I try to do is find that healthy balance because we have to have a little bit of ego in order to be able to accomplish certain things, but we have to keep our egos in check. So what is the difference between claiming your power and defending your greatness versus ego? Well, a lot of people, like I've heard Wayne Dyer, who I consider, I've never met in life and consider to be a mentor, he's talking about there's no defense for the ego. And I've heard other people uh, that I have a lot of respect for. Matt Kahn comes to mind, for example. And he talks about the integration of the ego. And I think, I think Matt Kahn's a little closer to what, what I believe because I don't think that Source provides us with a... Ego for no reason, as Wayne Dyer would say, right? So I believe it's a matter of integration. And we, so, so many times, I think, to get to maybe get, getting to the heart of your question, we think that anything that we want to do for ourselves is selfish or egoic. And that's not necessarily true. It could be just the opposite. I mean, if we go back to you know, the miracle of birth and why we're here at a certain point in time in a certain place, we're born to certain parents, everything else. Most major religions and even Darwin would say that there's, there's a reason for that, to evolve the planet, right? And the, what I would call the curse of conformity is what takes that shine off of it. So really when you're acting in your interest in what you want to do, as long as you're not doing it to hurt someone or anything else, you're doing it because of what's inside your heart, that might be considered egoic or selfish, but really that's why you're here. And I always say self-care is not selfish, because if you can't take care of yourself first, 
you're not going to be able to take care of the others around you. That that's very true. That's very true. I I talk to people a lot uh, a lot about that, especially parents. It's very hard for parents to think about caring for themselves first, but you know that simple put the oxygen mask on before you put it on your kid. Right. Is so true in life because the way I see it, you're setting an example for your kids and taking care of themselves and and that sort of thing is something that you want to teach your kids. And so no, self-care is not selfish. And, you know, really when you think about it, people that are trying to distract you from your self-care are really saying, take care of me because I can't take care of myself. And if you go take care of them, you might feel good at a time and it might help them at a time, but they're not really learning to care for themselves. I spent a lot of time last year transitioning through a lot of things and realizing that more and more and practicing it more and more. And in one of our recent conversations, you said something to me that really struck a chord because I had a situation a couple weeks ago, as you and I had talked about, where I was finally able to walk away from a particular project that I just didn't want to be a part of anymore. And I stated my facts and I was very happy at the end result. And you said something to me that really I wasn't even thinking about because last year was all about inner peace for me. And I made all those resolutions and changes to do that. And there was one thing holding me back apparently. And you said to me, do you realize what happened? Do you realize what you did that day? And I looked at you and I said, no, what did I do? And I thought I was just walking away and, you know, finishing the whole program of inner peace and getting my sanity back. And you said, you finally loved yourself 100% completely. That really struck a chord with me. I did not even realize what I had done that day, but you saw that. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's something that we don't do when we talk about self-care and everything else. Self-love is, oh, it sounds egoic, sounds narcissistic. But it's really where we should be the more we love ourselves. That's the state that we're supposed to be in. We talk about that single-digit error, right? Right. We, weren't, we don't talk about worth. We're not comparing ourselves to other people. We're not doing the things that adults in, in a capitalistic society tend to do, right? We're just loving ourselves. We're having fun. We're loving our friends, and we're connecting. And, yeah, that, that self-connection, that self-love is such a difficult thing because it's labeled that way, right? So right. when you do something like that, you know, you're feeling bad. You feel like, oh, my goodness, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm hurting people. No, you're just loving yourself. And what other paths that puts other people on, that's okay because that's the way it's supposed to be, that perfection in the universe. So you get to this point now where you can really claim your love for yourself, and that brings you power, and that brings you immeasurable powers. Yeah, so, again, we're going right back to those three words, claim your power. And I... I can never thank you enough for speaking those words to me because it was like the brick wall I needed leveled on my head because I myself still doubt certain things. I think that's the human element that creeps in. No matter how good we become at something, no matter how much we think we have it together, that human element still creeps in. We still doubt ourselves from time to time. Even this morning coming in here with you, we had that discussion before we went on the air. You know, I was a little nervous 32 years behind a microphone, why was I nervous? And you coached me again. People don't realize what an amazing coach you are. 
You what? just, you're so calm, cool, collective. You walk in here and you're just like, hey, listen. And you gave me those words of encouragement again. And it's like, why am I even doubting myself? But that's a human thing. Well, it's a human thing, but it's also based on the conception that we can do something right or that we can do something wrong. And I'm not so worried about failure. And I think a lot of people place this thing on failure that failure is not an option. But I know that through my trials and tribulations in life and watching other people, I believe failure is the teaching tool for us. You have to fail in order to learn. So to me, it is one of the best options out there. I've never liked that phrase that it's not an option. Right. And, and, and it, it goes to the idea that, that it's even possible. I mean, something may fail, you know, in, in terms of the vision we have for it. But it doesn't mean it's failed. It doesn't mean we're failures. There's so many different layers to that. But again, to me, it goes back to there are certain things that there is right or wrong. Two plus two has to equal four. We, we agree on the wor way words are spelled, et cetera, et cetera. But this idea of this is going to be a certain way or else I fail is really an illusion in so many ways because what you're failing, like, for instance, a, a, a project like this where there's maybe not necessarily a tangible measure of success or failure. It's not like a math test where you get a problem wrong, right? Right. Um, that, is, that success or failure is something that you're defining on your own. It's only yours. Nobody out here listening to this in this show is going to know whether it's a quote-unquote success or failure, or nobody's going to know what what the register is. It's only going to be within you. And to me, that's a complete illusion because you don't have all the facts. You don't know who you're touching out here in the world to say, oh, this, this show failed because it only got a certain amount of people to listen to it. Maybe that's your metric. But you don't know about within those certain amount of people the kind of effect it had. So one, it's an illusion that you've, you've created on your own to set yourself up to keep yourself small. Because if you go, oh, if I failed at this, okay, well, I'm going to go back. Well, you don't know. You don't know that you failed. So, 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 you know, get off your high horse and say, this is my contribution to the world. I'm no better, no worse than anyone else in this planet. And here's my contribution and take it for what it's worth. There is no success. There is no failure. And that's why we call it get real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you just have to get real. Sometimes you have to strip all the bullshit away and just put it out there. Because I think as a society, we're so afraid and limited in what we say because we're afraid of how we're going to affect people. We're afraid of the judgment. And I've gotten used to the fact now, especially when I do blogs and stuff, I don't, I don't care. I'm just putting it out there. And if I can touch one person and make a difference in their life, that's all that matters. It's a domino effect. You touch one person, they touch someone else, and it just keeps going down the line. And I think my biggest fear was just the fact that I was listening to what I was being told that I shouldn't be doing, and that is not something that I like. I don't like it when someone says, you can't do that. It's like, well, why can't I do that? Why not? Why not me? Why not you? Why do we have to allow others' opinions to affect us so much? And I've gotten used to the fact now that I'm stripping those negative voices away, and I'm just putting it out there because that's what the key to everything is. I've always said I'm here to live, love, learn, and teach. 
And a friend of ours, Brian McClay, said that there's a lot of people who don't follow that fourth step. They don't teach. They don't put things out there. We go through trials and tribulations for a reason. It's not only to make us grow and to strengthen who we are, but I've always been in the belief that if you're capable of standing up and speaking out loud about what you've been through, telling your story will help other people and inspire them to not only take back their own life, but maybe even make them strong enough to stand up there and tell their story in order to help somebody else. We're kind of like the life preserver. You know, you throw it out there in shark infested waters and you're trying to help people. And where I come from, I just don't, I, I've learned not to worry about what other people think so much. And I think that that is probably one of the most freeing things in the world is to not really care if anybody doesn't like what I say. If you don't like what I say, you don't have to listen. And that's, I see a lot of people that have a hard time, you know, just adjusting that level for themselves. They're so afraid to speak their truth. They're so afraid to claim their power. And it's hard for me to understand. I mean, I know I've been there too. I've been in the middle of that. And when you said that to me a few months ago, I did four interviews where I claimed that power. Yeah. And it was the most relieving feeling I've ever had, being able to just say, okay, yeah, I can do this. And I'm not afraid to say I can. But I mean, it's the hardest struggle for us as human beings to get to that point. Well, well let, me, let me ask you this. Um, when you, you know, we had that conversation and you, you did those interviews. And I, I remember talking to you after, I think, the first one, one or two. And, you know, bef before you did that, before I told you to claim your power and you stepped into it, right? You had all these fears, right? You yeah. had all these fears yeah. of, of basically of judgment, right? Of judgment, derision, you're crazy, whatever, right? Well, and it's funny because I'm not one who cares about that, but for some reason I started to care about well, it. Well, but let's not, if we're going to get real, let's not pretend you don't because you did. I did, yes. Yeah, you did. And, and we all do to a certain extent. It's just a matter of where, right? right. It's just a matter of how deep it hits, okay? Right. So for, th for this particular subject, you were not comfortable. You I was were, reluctant. Okay, and you yeah. had... You had, I think it's fair to say, you had a fear of judgment, fear of condemnation. Yeah, because it deals with real life people. Okay. And yeah. that's where the fear okay. was. Okay, yeah. you had a fear of condemnation. Yeah. Okay. And then you went on these shows and you talked about this subject, right? Right. And did that fear that you had before you did it, did that ever come to pass? The interesting thing was, I remember... No, um, hang on now, yes or no? I know you, Robin, you well, filibuster, yes, yes or no, did it come to pass? <laughs> There's the lawyer. Did it come to pass? Sort of, a little bit, just a little bit. But, but, I, but I think it was only because, I mean, you could hear it in one of the interviews I did, I chuckled right before I said it. Yeah. So I knew that that fear was still existing just a little bit. But once I got it out... I didn't care anymore. Okay, and that's my point. Okay, so that, that fear, you know, the fear of that condemnation, that universal condemnation, whatever your imagination brought forth, what was going to happen to you once you said these things on the air, right? That never came, that never materialized, did it? No. Okay, and that's the point I'm trying to make because that fear, that means the fear you had before you did it was an illusion. It was an illusion. It was a self-created illusion to say don't do this maybe a goic maybe to protect yourself maybe you know not go out there not extend yourself and that's my point and that's 
that's one of the things I've said in my videos and everything else. Fear is more often than not, and that's why I was kind of uh, lawyering you a little bit there because <laughs> I wanted to get the listeners to this point is that those fears we have are more often than not an illusion that we've created. They never come to pass. So the, the, the barrier between you stepping into your power and talking about these things and was this fear that you had, this wall that you created, right? Right. And then once you walk through it or once you walk through the door, it was all gone. It was all an illusion to begin with. And 99 times out of a, a hundred, it's going to be that way. There might be some exceptions. So I couch myself again in that lawyer mode. But <laughs> that is the reality that these fears are an illusion. They're self-created illusions. And, th and that sounds horrible. But the good news is that means you can wipe them out in an instant. If you created it, you can wipe it out. And when you had that little laugh in with Brian and Keith and... Um, once you had that little laugh and got over it and spat it out, that was it. And it was done. And you're sitting there waiting for the two of them to comment something like, okay, you're so full of it. But I mean, the way that they handled it, it was so awesome because I think most people don't understand certain things and that's where their responses come from. I mean, I didn't even understand what I was going through at the time either. It just happened to me. So the idea that these two young men were sitting there and, you know, they, they accepted everything I had to say and they were intrigued by it. And that was the point where, I mean, I thank them to death because they're the guys that actually made me feel so comfortable between you telling me to claim it and them saying, oh, wow, that's like really cool. Let's talk about it. It makes you feel more comfortable. You don't feel like you're on edge and that you can't say it. You have to, I mean, I've taken the stage and talked about domestic violence. And that was hard enough to get up there and do that. But to talk about being able to communicate with people who have passed away, that was a whole different realm for me. And I couldn't understand why I had such a hard time being comfortable saying it. And your words telling me to claim it and that, that little giggle there, that was my moment of, okay, I've got to hold this back. Ah, screw this. I'm just going to do it. And your words kept echoing in my head that whole interview. Claim your power. Just do it. Claim your power. Just do it. And they were the most powerful words that anybody has ever spoken to me. Being 52 years old and having someone tell me that now is like, wow, I wish I had heard that 25 years ago. <laughs> you know, I but, wouldn't, but maybe you weren't ready for it 25 years I ago. I probably wasn't. And that's a lot of the things that happen with, with people. We try to plant the seeds and try to, to help them, but they're just not ready to hear it yet. I love a, a mentor of mine. Um, Sean Stevenson that we've talked about before that recently passed away. He used to quote from a Kevin Costner movie all the time. And it was totally out of context, but it made so much sense to what you're saying right now is that you can only help the ones that swim towards you. And so many times we can exhaust our energy, you know, throwing that life raft out to people that aren't swimming towards it, that don't want it. And, you know, you were swimming towards me, metaphorically. You know, you were ready to hear it. You were, and, and that's why it was, was shared with you. And that's why it resonated, so. Well, I keep telling you this, and I need you to believe it eventually, but you are an amazing coach. Well, I thank you. And it's, it's not a matter of disbelief. It's a matter of knowing that things are just flowing through me. And really, ultimately, I could say something like this to 100 people and it's you who has to be ready to hear it, and it's you who has to 
do it because you can hear, you know, look, you could see claim your power on a bumper sticker, right? Somebody could, you know, and they go, eh, you know, and it doesn't power mean to anything, what? right? Right. <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean anything to them. So, um, that, I guess that's my point is, you know, you can say, okay, well, I, I did good coaching and I appreciate that, but ultimately it came through me and, and you made the choice to really hear it because so many times we can, we can hear things but not really absorb them, not really digest them. And, and that's, that's what's needed to, for true evolution is to digest and process. Now, both you and I do coaching. I do what I call transformational soul coaching. And I know that it's one of the most difficult things to do, especially, I mean, we're talking about it right now. You can do everything you can to give them the tools, but if they're not willing to put in the work, they're not going to get what they need out of it. And I've had to fire clients before because it is very difficult to give them the message when they're not ready to hear it. Do you find it hard coaching? Well, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of coaching of late because of everything else I'm doing. But, um, you know, there's a lot, there can be a lot of barriers. And I like when I released Defend Your Greatness and when I look at that book, I looked it over yesterday. One of the things, it's, it's a, to me, it's a deconstruction process. It's ultimately pitching some of those things away. And when I first came out as a coach, I wanted to help lawyers because there's a lot of tragic stories about lawyer suicide, lawyers overdosing, things like that. And nobody seems to want to get real with the, with the issue, right? And the issue is this unhappiness and this structure because to me, the way I see it, happy people aren't, you know, aren't going to be committing suicide. They're not going to be having drug problems. They're not going to be doing all the things that some of these unhappy lawyers are doing. We don't take a look at that, right? It's the deconstruction process. And one thing that was hard for a lot of lawyers, which is why I ended up just really cutting back the practice, is because they were so wrapped up in um, the success, the tangible success, that happiness was just an afterthought, and they just couldn't see that as a beacon. So um, it just became... Um, you know, something I do now, if, if someone swims towards me, more than happy to coach them. But, you know, right now I'm more focused on my writing and, and everything else. But, you know, that you mentioned that I was with one of my mentors yesterday and his wife, and we had this conversation kind of like that. And he is a retired police officer and uh, he had gone to his doctor and his, at this point, he was still an officer on duty, and the, the doctor was having this conversation with him, and the doctor actually envied the police officer because they had this conversation. He goes, how great is it to be a doctor? You know, you're, you're looking at this guy thinking, wow, you're 34, you're a doctor. This is amazing what you can do to help people. The doctor criticized his own life. He said, I envy you. How long have you been on duty? How long have you been serving the community? And he told him at this point he had been on duty for quite a while. He said, you're really lucky because you go out there, you serve the community at your time off, you go have fun with your friends, you travel everywhere. But as a doctor, I don't know what that life's like. I've spent the last 12 years in school studying while all my friends were going out and having fun. And I finally, just now at 34, am able to practice as a doctor and have my own practice. But now I have to put all my resources into building this staff and creating this office. So at this point, he's still not able to go out and enjoy his life. He has spent all these years becoming this doctor. And he envied the police officer for having the freedom that he did. 
And that's the one thing that's, that amazes me. We spend all this time pigeonholing ourselves because of that career goal, and we miss out on the little finer things in life. And it's all perception. It's all perspective. Well, part of it's perception and part of it's perspective. But what I would say to that is that this goes to what I was saying earlier. This guy becomes a doctor thinking that he's going to be happy. The, your, your retired cop friend looks at him with admiration. You know, he's 34. He's got his life ahead of him. He's got all these things to do. And he didn't make happiness a priority. Right. This doctor didn't make happiness a priority. And so he's envious of that. And that's what scares me because it's so easy to go down that rabbit hole, right? So now this doctor is looking at, you know, building his practice and hiring people and doing whatever he's doing. And he may get there, but he may always, there is always going to be something. And happiness can always be put on the back burner. I mean, that's the one thing that's so hard. You think about it, how much happiness can be put on the back burner. And one, that sounds esoteric, but one perfect example is think about... How many people have done this? I know I've done this. You go, you buy something, whether it's a, a movie or a, a bike or something, you're going to go out and have fun with it, right? right? And then something comes up and you don't. And you don't and you don't and you don't. And that thing collects dust, right? And that, to me, that's an illustration so much of how much we can put happiness on the back burner because we want it. We want that fun. We want to have it. But something comes up. Something comes up, oh, I got to work late, so I can't go on a bike ride. Oh, I got to work on Saturday, so I can't go out and shoot hoops at, at the park like I really want to. All that stuff, and it seems it's practical, right? And so that's where we get lost. We get into that web, and it's so easy to see. Is this doctor, or whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, or anybody who's gone to college, especially an advanced degree, they owe all this money. Like That's another thing, problem I have with lawyers, like, they might be $200,000 in debt, and even if they're miserable as all get out and they're working 100 hours a week at their firm just to, you know, just to cover their student loan debts or what have you, um, they can't think about change. They can't think about happiness. We have to make happiness a priority, not some expendable thing that we can put away in our closet and, and collect dust and hope it's going to happen someday. Right, and I, I feel so bad for people that don't understand that I actually am lucky. I'm very appreciative of where I am in my life now, even though there's so much complicating factors that surround my life, like taking care of family and stuff. But I'm at a point in my life now where I do what I enjoy doing. And if I feel like turning the phone off and sitting at home, lying on my bed, watching Netflix on my day off all along, you know, and binging, that's what I'm going to do. I, I start taking those few moments every day just to relax. This morning, driving in, watching that full moon in the sky, it was hard to not just look at that and say, wow, thanks for the nightlight, guys. You're seeing it at 7 o'clock in the morning still, and it's a beautiful thing. I think that we just forget to take those few minutes every single day, whether it's two minutes, five minutes, an hour, the whole entire day. We have to take that few minutes out for ourselves. And we just forget that life gets away from us. And I don't even think this stuff existed when we were children. We did things when we were kids. The, the world is much different now. But I still think that we need to just take that few minutes a day for ourselves, whether it's just five minutes of shutting the entire world out. I mean, even guys go to the bathroom and look at magazines. That's still five or ten minutes, right? <laughs> you got you to find your little moments here and there. And, you know, you talk about... 
I love this book, Defend Your Greatness. You talk about 10 steps in here, but there's one thing that really resonates with me. Why do we have such a hard time relinquishing control and just allowing things to happen for our greater good? Why do we do that? Why do we have such a hard time relinquishing control? Because I think we're taught from a very young age that we're in charge and to fight for yourself and we have this capitalistic competitive society and you've got to go out and get good grades and, and be better than everyone else. And it sets that up. And we think we have, it's funny because we talk about reclaiming our power, but we also talk about, we also have to realize that there's only so much that's in our control. And we don't like to hear that. Our egos don't like to hear that, right? right. Like even coming here, I come in here this morning you know, you don't know if somebody's going to rear-end you. You don't have any control over that. You don't have any control over lots of things in your life. And that's a, one of the hardest processes and certainly been something that I've been dealing with lately, too, is this idea of control. But just allowing and letting things come to you and loving yourself and that, that, that self-care and everything else will generate the powers of source and that, that greatness inside you and make you connect. But we just have this idea that we're going to control it all and yeah we control you know uh what we do in many levels like we have the choice of whether we're going to spend an hour meditating or spend an extra hour working or whatever it is we have certain amount of control but we don't have the kind of control that we think we do and we like to believe that we do we like to believe that we do because we'll feel safer when we do so I've always believed that you have to master your reactions and your actions to what's going on around you as far as not having control of the situation, but being able to control how you deal with it. To me, that is, that's the hardest lesson of all. Is, and I've had to learn through the years to remove the emotional quotient so I don't react incorrectly and create a bigger problem than what has already started. And that's been one of the toughest lessons as a human being for me to learn is just to take a few seconds, practice the pause, breathe, and not react. And I think as a human being, it's very difficult not to react to situations or other people and things that happen. And, and that's a big learning lesson I've had to learn over the last 15, 20 years is just the fact that, oh, wait a second. I'm not responsible for their actions or what they say. I'm not responsible for what just happened but I am responsible for how I act and react to what just happened or what they said or did. And you hold yourself in check. And I'm starting to claim that power of holding myself in check and not responding so quickly to things that happen. And I know that's a tough thing to learn. And I'm hoping that, you know, by talking about this more and more openly, that a lot of people will understand that, yes, you can be human. That's part of it. But you also have to understand that, you don't have to react to everything that happens. Well, I think that's very true. You know, one of the things that I saw as a criminal defense lawyer so many times is that people acted out of a feeling of disrespect or anger or something of that nature, and then that meant that they were going to, you know, be a property of the state for several next several years. And one of the things that taught me, along with everything that I went through, is this very simple idea that I think gets to what you're talking about. As I will always pause and ask myself, will I give a crap about, if I was on my deathbed right now, would I give a crap about this incident? Whatever's, whatever it is that you, you're reacting to. Let's use the, the rear-ended by a car, right? 
you get rear-ended by a car on the way home, you're going to be upset, your car's damaged, et cetera, et cetera, right? But are you really going to be mad about that if, this, if you were on your deathbed? Would you really be thinking about the dent you had in your car because that guy wasn't, he was on his cell phone and he rear-ended you? No, you're probably not. So why worry about it now? Because it's still a moment in your life, right? So it's still part of that, 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 that hourglass full of sand, right? And if you're going to be worried about, oh, my car, or this or that, you know, I mean, think back, like, you know, getting younger, having door dings in my car and being so upset about that. And now I don't even know what car it was or, you know, how many cars ago, whatever it was, right? And it just doesn't matter. And so many times we get wrapped up in the, the heat of the moment, this egoic, I keep using the word egoic, it's probably not even a word, but I keep using this, <laughs> this, you know, um, this concept of the idea that, you know, reaction and we're so much, you know, looking and making sure we're not disrespected and everything else, but really just saying, yeah, would I care about this if I was on my deathbed? If I was going to be on my deathbed tomorrow, would I care about what's happening right now? And I've never found a time, maybe there's an exception that I'm not thinking of here this morning, when I said, yeah, I would care about that, you know? You know, you like, say the cable goes out before the, before the big game or something, and you, you're mad. It's like, would you care about that if you're on your deathbed tomorrow? No, you wouldn't, so don't care about it now because it's still a moment in your life. And that, just asking that one question is, is really, to me, the simplest way to deal with that. So why do we have such a hard time believing that we're worthy of good things? I mean, that, to me, I... I see so many people struggle with that. And I don't know if that's part of our conditioning. I don't know if that's part of things that we see out there that people say, well, we're not worthy of good things. We're all worthy of good things. Why do we have such a hard time struggling with that? Well, I mean, there's so many, each person's going to have a different answer to that question. So it's so hard to do, but. But I like your perspective. So I want to hear it. it it's, it's, <laughs> it sounds to me though, like, and, and it sounds like a cop-out, but it sounds to me like that we don't believe it. That the, the reason we don't feel we're worthy is we don't believe we're worthy. Now, there's a, and, and that sounds like a cop-out, but, but it's true. There's a myriad of answers, right? There could have been something about your upbringing that say you're not supposed to do this. Like, you know, maybe even gender roles. Like, you know, you can't grow up and be, uh, say, a woman wants to be a football coach. Can't be a, you might have been told you can't be a football coach. We have that these days. Oh, we do. We have but, several. But there's lots of reasons why you, could, why you could feel unworthy. Like someone who was adopted might feel unworthy because they feel like their parents gave up. You know, there's all kinds of different reasons why we could feel unworthy. And so it's hard to say why. But it's if we, if we I guess maybe if, if I boil it down now that I'm talking here in my own voice, we boil it down it's that we forget that inherent worth that comes with us from birth. Is that that right there is something we had when we're, when we're zero, when we're one. Like I, I talk about in the book, if you get a toy when you're five, you don't think, oh, I'm worthy of it or I was unworthy of it, right? But as an adult, you might say, oh, I'm worthy of this house or I'm worthy of that. Or, I'm not worthy of this relationship or whatever it is. And it is ultimately our own reason. But, but part of that is that we forget that our reason, that our worth is inherent at birth. So if you could give one piece of advice to anybody out here listening, because you've already given me a ton of advice and I love it. I soak it up every time we have our coffee meetings. 
If you could give them one piece of advice about claiming their power and defending their greatness, what would that be? One piece of advice. I think it goes to what I said before, is this inherent worth. Because if, if you believe you're worthy, then you'll go out and do the other things. Then you'll swim towards the other people. Then you'll follow your heart. Then you'll claim your greatness, claim your power, whatever it is. But if you don't believe you're worthy, then you're not going to strive that hard for something, right? Right. You just don't believe you're worth it, so you're not going to do it. You're wow. going you're gonna to divert to Netflix and, or whatever it is, whatever distraction, because you just don't believe you're worthy of happiness or success or whatever it is. And once you believe that, then you can start living in your greatness and, and being what you were meant here to be. Because I, th I think my personal belief is that when we're unhappy, it's, it's source telling us that, that we're off track. Those feelings of unhappiness is source telling us we're off track and we can get right back on track really easily in just little incremental steps, just, you know, doing what we want to do, meditating, taking care of ourselves. Even if it's someone who's so miserable and unhappy with their life, if they start taking one of these steps, like, for example, exercising, it doesn't cost anything, no big life changes, just start exercising or start meditating. Meditating is even easier if you have physical limitations. Take out 15, a half hour, an hour a day to meditate and start taking care of yourself, and it feels good. That one little shift that, that doesn't mean you quitting your job or getting a divorce or anything else, just that one simple step towards making you feel better, and then you keep following the, the, the proverbial breadcrumbs, each little step. And, you know, once you start feeling like you're worthy of that, you just start making those little steps. It's easier to do. I can't thank you enough for being here with me today. Well, I can't thank you enough for having me. It's, it's always uh, fun to have these conversations. And we're not drinking coffee. We're, we're drinking it's, water it's, this it's morning. We're doing in front of microphones. <laughs> yeah, the listeners can probably tell I'm not having coffee. I'm a, a little slow today. but That's okay. Um, I'm slow too. <laughs> you know, um, no, it's, it's, it's a great time. It's always fun. Pleasure. Like we should just record our coffee conversations. We it? should do that. I need, I need to bring a little portable unit with me and then let everybody eavesdrop. But again, I cannot thank you enough for being here with me today. You bet. You know, it's in our vulnerability that we find our greatest strength. We can have a heart of gold, but yet still be strong enough to say no. We can have inner peace, but yet be fierce and take on the world. We can be whoever we choose to be. What is it that you want to be? What is it that you want to do? Who is it that you want to be? Isn't it about time that you start living the best life possible for you? Don't be afraid to take chances. Don't be afraid to take risks. Don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone. It's time for you to go after what it is you want in life. You've only got this one life to live right now, so stop questioning things so much and start doing the things that you really want to do that make you happy. The past is over. You can't go back and change it. So stop letting it control your life. The future hasn't happened yet, so stop worrying about it so much. Start living in the present and make the most of each moment you have. It's time for you to trust in yourself. It's time for you to claim your power and defend your greatness. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about but really need to hear. 
Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real. 